read the very first part, which is good news to me. <laughs> Judges 3. Um, so we're going to read from Judges 3, 7 to 11 for now, and Brian will take it from there. So Judges 3, 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the, the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. I went to a volleyball game yesterday. Our very own Lainey Gill and Talia Kaplow are playing girls' JV volleyball at Mount Greylock. Am I on? I'm loud enough. I just seem like I'm on. That better? I'll keep going. You'll let me know. Oh, yeah. Phys ed voice. And I saw some great things at this JV volleyball game. It was awesome. Some good passing, some good teamwork, some, some really good effort. And as much as they really wanted to be successful and they were really trying hard to win, and they practice two hours a day, they practice hard, uh, they still mess up a lot. Balls hit the ground, poor communication, physical mistakes, positional mistakes. There's a lot going on. And when it starts to go bad in girls' JV volleyball, let me tell you, it goes bad. And all I want to do as a parent, as a coach from the sidelines, is just yell, come on, like just... Try harder! But try harder does not work. What they need to do is replace some of the lesser skills with greater skill and some lesser understanding with greater understanding. Or, dare I say it, they might even need transformed bodies. Right? All of this stuff comes into play. Well, like our volleyball friends, we will never succeed in this world in following God merely by trying harder. We talked about that a little bit last week. When our hearts are captured by the world's idols, we can't follow God, as we talked about two weeks ago. It's more often than not, we won't follow God. We need to replace these idols with a, a stronger devotion and a greater worship that has nothing to do, or very little to do, with trying harder. Admit it, if you've ever read Judges, if you've read the book of Judges, you, like me, want to scream at the Israels like at a girls' JV volleyball team. Israel, try harder! What are you doing? Why do you go through these cycles over and over again? But deep down, we know that's not the answer because trying harder has failed us so many times. You want the punchline to our sermon? Here it is in minute two. We need to see God's unrelenting, costly, sacrificial, steadfast love and faithfulness to us. As we see that and experience that, that's what enables us to unseat the idols through God's power. God unseats those idols 
that have, we've allowed to burrow into our hearts. And we see this in Judges. Yes. Because it's not just a story of idolatry and failure, but of God's continual, unrelenting love and faithfulness to his people. And we see that fulfilled in Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of redemption for us. We're going to see that this morning. This is why Greg talked about this book being challenging, freeing, and full of hope. And it's why Chris gave us last week, yada, yada, yada. I don't know what, I don't know what that is. Gave us yada, knowing God. This is the importance of knowing God. Today, I want you to be impressed. And, and I say that in the fullest connotation of that word. I want you to be amazed. I want you to be inspired by God and his faithfulness in redeeming us as we look at situation shadows and fulfillment. Situation, shadows, and fulfillment. We're going to repeat this cycle twice with two different Old Testament judges. Let's pray as we begin again. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Judges. We see idolatry and we see sin. And we see it in your people. We see it in ourselves. Father, open up this book to us. Open up your word to us. Help us to see how these judges of yours pointed to the ultimate fulfillment of the ultimate judge and redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thank you for our time together. Give us wisdom and insight into your word. In your name we pray. Amen. The situation. The people, as we've heard over the last two weeks, have failed. And they've failed first to drive out the inhabitants of, of the land of Israel that they've gone in to possess. So they fail to drive out the people, which brings, which that sin in itself brings other sin. And a new generation of people have grown up not knowing God, not following God, not seeing God work in their lives. As sin and idolatry creep in, we have the two first stages of this judges cycle we've been talking about. The first two stages here, rejection of God by the people, and oppression of God's people by man. So the God who promised to bless his people Israel and also promised not to bless a disobedient people has this divine tension, as we talked about. As the people of Israel now are handed over to Kushan Rishathaim. Did a great job with names, Lord. Kushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharam. Aram Naharam simply means Aram between two rivers, which we'd find in Mesopotamia. And so Kushan Rishathaim comes down and oppresses God's people. We hear very little. It's just a simple narrative and story. But as Kushan Rishathaim comes down, I think it's important first, as he oppresses God's people and controls them for eight years, we get a picture of who he is by his name. And Kushan Kushan Rishathaim literally means extra wicked. Extra wicked. So God's people, how'd you like to be oppressed by extra wicked? It's not like extra sauce or extra meat at Chipotle. This is extra wicked. So whatever you can imagine, double it. Although they don't really double the extra meat at Chipotle. They kind of skimpy a little bit. Neither here nor there. But extra wicked is his name. The other connotation of extra wicked could be viewed as uh, 
directed hostility toward God and God's people is another picture of Kushan Rishathaim's name or deserving of punishment also is described. An extra wicked. Now we have two stories going on at once. We're going to be concerned about the one. But as Greg talked about even a couple of weeks ago, we're also we have this situation where God is using a people outside of his own to redeem his own people and bring them back. There's another story going on in the story of Aram Naharaim, of Aram itself. And we see this piece of the story as extra wicked also experiences punishment at their specific time and place. But God's story with his people here is about redemption. And we're going to begin to see that as Kushan Rishathaim comes and takes over. After eight years, the people of God cry out and they say, deliver us. We've been sinful. We've not worshipped you as we ought. And here we have now our first look at shadows and shadows. As we peek through the fog, as we peek through the darkness, we begin to see shadows of what God is doing. And he's going to do it through his first character, Othniel. And we've mentioned that in Judges, there's this downward spiral as we see both in the people... And their worship of God, but also in the judges somewhat themselves. And our first few judges are, generally speaking, much better than our last few judges. More than generally speaking. So our first ought to be a shining example. And here we have Othniel. And he is a bright light indeed. Othniel is chosen by God. And we've known about him a little bit already from Judges 1. We'll come back to this. Othniel's name literally means Lion of God. And so here we have the Lion of God chosen to lead God's people as his first judge or deliverer. Not only is he the Lion of God, he is also a judge from the tribe of Judah. He is the only judge from the tribe of Judah. Why is that important? Well, Judah is the royal line of Israel. So he is royalty in the line of what is to be kings and authority in an exalted tribe from an exalted family. So this lion of God from the tribe of Judah is selected. And not only is he prepared to fight, but the uh, Judges 3, where we hear that the spirit of God was on him. He was prepared to fight and he was anointed to fight. And he goes out to war. This is all we know. He goes out to war and he defeats Kushan Rishathaim. Kind of gloss over that a little bit. But this is the reality. This is the story we're given here in Judges of God's judge Othniel. But we know more than the fact that he just went out and was prepared to fight to free God's people. We have the story from Judges 1 where Othniel is offered the opportunity to fight for a bride. If you remember in back in Judges 1, Caleb, who was one of the leaders of the people, comes in with Joshua into the promised land. And Caleb at 85 says, give me what you promised me. And he said, OK, what's that? Well, it's Hebron, where the giants live, where the Anakim live. Let me go conquer that city. I'm, I'm just as strong as I was when I was a young man. And God is faithful. He said he would give it to me. So off 85-year-old Caleb goes and he conquers the Anakim and takes over Hebron. Caleb's nephew is Othniel. 
and we see that he's, he's part of this process and sees God working. So when Caleb says, who will go take Kiriath Saphir, also known as Debir, who will go take this city? Whoever takes this city, I will offer my daughter Axa as the reward, as the prize for taking this city. And Othniel says, I'm all about it. And off he goes. He's prepared to fight. And he goes to fight to secure a bride for himself. And he takes Kyria Saphir, and Axa, Caleb's daughter, is given to him in marriage. All these really interesting kind of connections and things about Othniel's life. He's prepared to fight and overcome the enemy. He's prepared to fight and secure himself a bride. And he was used by God in an awesome way to secure peace for the people of God. And that peace lasts 40 years. But when Othniel died, the people's allegiance to God dies with him. That's the shadow. Well, where's the fulfillment in any of that? Where's the fulfillment? Well, God couldn't bless his people because of their disobedience. But he had promised to bless them. Toward this end, they're given over. They're given over in their rejection of God to be oppressed. They're given over in their sin to be oppressed until they repent. While not always quite so straightforward as this, God uses all kinds of situations in our lives to bring us back to him. We see this in 2 Corinthians 7 as Paul writes a difficult letter and says, I'm sorry to be the one to do this to you and put you in this difficult situation and tell you these hard truths. But it's to bring you, it's for the purpose of bringing you back into repentance and back to relationship with God. When we see our need and when we repent, God sends his judge. His deliverer. And for us, that deliverer is none other than the Lion of God from Judah. In Revelation 5, 5, we're told Jesus described as the Lion of Judah, the Lion of God from Judah, as Othniel was. Jesus Christ. Jesus was prepared and anointed at his own baptism to fight the enemy. And that enemy was sin. And death, the things that oppressed us. Not only was he prepared to fight the enemy, he was prepared and anointed to fight <clears throat> to secure himself a bride. That bride is you and me. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He fights for us. His bride. We gloss over the fighting in Judges 3 with Othniel. We don't see much about it. Do we do the same with Jesus? Do we appreciate and understand, even if possible for us to understand, what Jesus did in dying for us? Do we appreciate Him taking our sin, our filth, our garbage on Himself? And experiencing that bodily in his own person. Can we even begin to imagine what <clears throat> his separation from his father 
must have felt like. This was the battle that was waged to defeat the enemy and purchase a bride, you and me. Ultimately, we see Jesus as the greater Othniel, securing a peace with God that wasn't 40 years. It wasn't ended by death or sin or rebellion or idolatry. Jesus secures an everlasting peace with God for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Not long after Othniel dies, the people turn and rebel. And after just one cycle of rejection and oppression and a repentance and deliverance, another cycle begins and the pattern starts again. In verse 12, we see it. Once again, Israel rejects God. And this time, we didn't read about it this morning, but I'll tell you the story because it's a fascinating story. Kids, this is not potty humor. So we go through this story. It's a, it's a real story in Scripture. Like, there's some weird stuff in here, right? I think uh, when, when our kids were young, we did a quick devotional series after dinner. Weird and wild stories of the Bible. And this was clearly one of them. So Israel rejects God. And as past, God gives them over in their rejection of him to oppression by, by man. And this time it's Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, the Moabites are at odds with the people of Israel. If you look back into the stories of how Moab came to be, we have Abraham, the father of the Israelites, and Abraham's nephew was Lot. And Lot's son was Moab. And Moab was always at enmity with Israel. And it continues to, into our story today. So Eglon is the king of Moab. And Eglon, as king, invades Israel, takes everything on the east side of the Jordan River, crosses the Jordan, and takes Jericho. And Jericho becomes the seat of his power. And now it's right in the middle of Israel. And he subdues Israel for 18 years. And they worship, they don't worship him. Backtrack. They offer him tribute, they serve him, and he subdues them. Now, Eglon, in his seat of power, accepts tribute. And every, we don't know how often, so often, tribute would be brought. And at this particular time, the man selected to bring the tribute was a man named Ehud. And Ehud, we're told, is a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. And is that left-handed? Yeah, you people are weird, right? And it's no different here because everyone was right-handed, right? So if you were left-handed, that was an odd thing. Could God really use a left-handed person? You say, come on, like that's just so idiotic that we wouldn't say that now. But this is the reality. Could God use a left-handed person from the smallest possible tribe of Israel? Benjamin was nothing. Would God use a Benjamite? Would God use a left-handed person? Ehud is chosen to deliver the tribute. As we begin to talk about now shadows, the shadows that we see in this story, Ehud, this left-handed man from Benjamin, his name literally means confessor, or maybe more accurately for us, a person with this inward conviction. Person with an inward conviction. Now, we don't know all the pieces of this, but we have to make some inferences from the story. So here's what we know in the story. Ehud is chosen to deliver the tribute. And Ehud then takes it upon himself 
to create and fashion a sword. And this sword is a one foot long sword. And he takes this sword and he straps it to his right side, which would be unusual because if you were right handed, you'd strap the sword to the left side. So it's in the wrong place. Maybe it might not be seen. But he makes his double-edged sword, straps it to his right side. And as they go to deliver the tribute, he has his men at arms with him. And the people come and they come to Jericho and they deliver the tribute. We're not certain if anybody else knows about Ahud's plan. It seems that no one else knows or understands his plan because they come and they deliver the tribute. Maybe Ahud wanted to scout it out. Could this possibly work? Either way, they drop the tribute with Eglon, king of Moab, and Ehud and the men leave. And as they pass the idols near Gilgal, Ehud says, you guys go on, I'm going back. Weird, okay, whatever. And Ehud goes back. And as he knocks on the door, I was thinking about this the other day, like, this is insane. Why would you let him in? Well, he just came and delivered tribute, and you got this guy all by himself, and he wants to come back, and he knocks on the door and he says, I got a message for the king. It's a secret message. They let him in. The only reason I can think of to let him in is, well, Eglon must think, oh, this is a great moment for me. He came, delivered the tribute. We searched him. He's all good. Now he's coming back. Well, we're certainly going to search him again, but they don't find the sword. And he comes in to deliver, and Eglon must think, well, he's going to give me good news. Maybe he's got a secret about someone's a traitor, and they're going to come back at me. Maybe he's got good intel for me. Maybe this can help keep me in power. His moment of triumph here, he thinks, this is really good for me. And they let him in, let him in. He says, well, it's a secret message. And Eglon says, cool, all right, everybody leave. Go out, go out of the room. Let us be alone. And when they're alone, Ehud says, I have a message for you. It's a message from God. This is awesome stuff. This is like a play. I have a message from God. And he pulls out the one-foot sword and he stabs him. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, Scripture tells us very clearly. He was a very large man. And it wasn't just in relationship to his physical condition. This was also a bloated, self-sufficient spiritual condition. And as Ehud pulls out the sword and stabs him, this is, this is in here. This is the reality. I'm sorry, moms and dads. I won't get too into it. You can read it to them on your own. Good luck with that. He stabs him and the sword goes in all the way. And other stuff happens. And, and he dies. And he dies. And he doesn't pull out the sword. And now Ehud is in the room with Eglon, king of Moab, and no one else is around. So he goes and he actually closes the doors because no one's around. And there's nowhere to escape. So he escapes through the latrine, out the hole, out and runs away. Now, while this is happening, the men of Eglon, king of Moab, are just hanging out. Like, okay, telling secrets, doing their thing. And they wait. And they wait. And Scripture tells us they waited to the point of embarrassment because they think, well, he must be going to the bathroom. So we're just going to keep waiting because that'd be even worse if we walk in on him. And they finally, they can't wait any longer. And they grab a key and they go in and they find their king dead. And Ehud is long gone. In the interim, we begin to see the picture that Ehud really hadn't told anybody. Because as he runs and goes, he gets to the hills of Ephraim and he blows the horn and he rallies men to himself. And they then run down to the fjords of the Jordan River. And as word gets out that Eglon, king of Moab, is dead, his men begin to flee. 
And as they flee toward the Jordan and across the Jordan, the Israelites strike down 10,000 men of Moab and Israel is delivered. And that's like, yeah, all right. The end of the story. Awesome. This is great stuff, man. Yeah. Really neat things. Eglon dies. Israel is restored. This really unexpected deliverer delivers and Israel is saved. So we have all of these shadows. Let's look at some of the fulfillment. First of all, one other shadow I forget to mention. Remember that Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin literally means, and remember, Benjamin's name was changed, if you haven't read this story in in Genesis, um, to son of my right hand, or place of power, son of power. Benjamin, son of my right hand. In Psalm 68, the Holy Spirit refers to Benjamin as the little tribe of Benjamin, or place of weakness. So we get this really interesting dichotomy in Benjamin, the tribe name, the person name, and the people name. Opposites brought together in Ehud. Power, the place of power, and the place of weakness, all found in the same place. He was a man of conviction, right? He was a man of conviction who allowed God to use him, not just even in his weakness, but through his apparent weaknesses. Fulfillment. Well, as Eglon, the king of Moab, kind of hated his family and made war against them, so we fight against our creator, the one who made us. But as we see our deep need and we repent and we see our weakness and we see ourselves more nearly as we are before God, we have a redeemer in Jesus whose deep conviction to obey his father led him to give his life. He was an unexpected savior. He was an unexpected savior. We expected a warrior, not a a humble, perceived weak by not answering at his own trial, perceived weak by not calling down legions of demons, uh, angels to help him in his time of need. He didn't use his power, but he humbled himself. That's not real weakness. That's a perceived weakness. But this is our unexpected Savior. No one really knew or understood his plan. He had told them, but it wasn't clear to them. They didn't know. They didn't really understand his plan. And as he offered his life, he was alone. He was alone in offering his life. The enemy, Satan, at his perceived moment of triumph, actually experiences his downfall as Jesus rises to new life. Jesus is... In the pit, but victory is coming, and he will be exalted and is exalted. Now, there's also fulfillment in us. 
and for us in some of these stories and promises. We've seen how Jesus as our Redeemer ultimately fulfills the role of judge and Redeemer and Deliverer that the judges fulfill in part. Are you amazed at God's story of faithfulness in Judges? Does this strike you as awesome? Are you amazed at God and how he ultimately fulfilled the role of the judges in Jesus, his son? I am. But trying harder won't earn God's peace provided by Jesus. What earns God's peace in Jesus? Romans 10 to 9 tells us. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what it means to cry out in repentance, seeing our great need for the ultimate judge and redeemer. We confess with our mouth that he is Lord. We believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead as the ultimate judge. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who defeated the enemy, death. And he fought for you, his bride. And he's provided an everlasting peace. And as we live in a pluralistic world with coexisting idolatry, even in our own hearts, May we remember 2 Corinthians 12 that tells us that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. In our weakness. God's grace is what we truly need to unseat the idols of our lives. That we allow God to do a work in us. That God is sufficient no matter what our weakness is. He desires for us to know Him, to love Him, and to be faithful to Him. That's our part. But God does the work in and through us. Thank God for a Redeemer like that. Let's pray. Father God, we are amazed at the story of your people and the story of your faithfulness. Your work in redeeming your people, even just partially through judges. We're even more amazed at your work in redeeming us through complete fulfillment by your Son, Jesus Christ. We stand in awe and we are amazed. Father, I pray this morning for those who've just heard this for the first time that Jesus desired and worked and fought to acquire a bride, us. Father, may we respond to you as a loving bride. May we come to you and say, We want your life, we want to be united to you through Jesus' death and resurrection. Father God, for us this morning, for each of us, for all of us that, that struggle with idolatry that's burrowed into our heart, 
and our lives and the sin that we live in. Father, we pray that we would see your faithfulness to us and that it is through your deliverance, your might, your power, working in our weakness, that idolatry is removed. As you give us a greater devotion, changed hearts, changed affections, Father, specifically this morning, we pray as a people that you would teach us to hate our sin the way you do. Father, teach us to stop relying on ourselves. (coughs) Teach us to depend on your Holy Spirit, who didn't just land and anoint us for a time and leave, but is present within us, indwells us. And gives us real spiritual power. May we know the joy of daily walking and living for you. In your son Jesus, most holy and precious name, we pray. Amen. When I was at, by way of benediction here as we finish, I've shared this story before. When I was at Deerfoot Lodge, uh, there's a group called the Lone Eagle Fellowship. And you choose your own name. Not something that you are, but something you aspire to be. And this one guy, when I was little, he chose the name. This was, chose the name, Weak Warrior. I'm like, what is that? It's my favorite Lone Eagle name of the 130 names I've heard. Weak Warrior. The constant reminder that we are only strong. When in our weakness we are found to live in God's power. Let's rise for our benediction. God's people, go this week in the power of God not to try harder, but to be weak warriors. God bless you.